The ABA is joining with Tropical Birding for the first time for an extraordinary adventure in Thailand in 2019. This is Thailand birding with a camera. So if you are a photographer that likes birds or a birder who likes to take a few photos, this is a trip with you in mind. And there are no shortage of incredible photo subjects in Southeast Asia. Stuff like sunbirds, pitta, incredible pheasants, spoonbilled sandpiper, some of the coolest looking birds on the planet. Plus, Mammals, culture, and amazing food with ABA friends. This is setting up to be a really exceptional time. Have I interested you yet? Is your mouth watering for bird photography and the real deal pad thai? Get more information at aba.org slash travel. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I am your host, Nate Swick, sitting in for your guest host, Greg Meese. I'm back from Israel, of course, where I helped the ABA like us. Subadult weed ears are the champions of the flyway. I'll have more on that in the next episode. I also got away to Florida there briefly, family trip, limited birding, but you know, even even limited birding can be pretty productive in Florida. I had sandhill cranes literally walk, well, I mean, maybe more of a strut or a saunter right past the timeshare condo I was staying at with my wife's family. Like these birds were like walking down the paved path that runs alongside this pond. So I yell at my kids, hey, come see this. And we sort of creep behind them and alongside these cranes, uh, which are really sort of you know shockingly big when you get close to them. You know, and for a while, we're trying to do that sort of birder sneaking up thing. And meanwhile, people are just, you know, walking the other direction or just, you know, walking past the cranes within 12 inches of them. Like, like these wild birds or some dudes heading out to play golf or something. The, the cranes don't care. I also had an experience one morning when I was out walking around with binoculars and some lady stops me because, as she says, I look like I know what I'm doing, which is not, you know, typically how people approach me when I have binoculars on. But... Anyway, she asked me what this weird screaming noise is that she keeps hearing. Uh, it's Limpkins, of course. And, and I tell her, and immediately one starts up. It sounds like someone is being murdered in an Edward Gorey cartoon on the other side of the pond. Crazy stuff. That's that's Florida birding for you. I said swallowtail kite, purple gallinule, lot, lots of fun stuff. Anyway, thanks, Greg Neese, for doing a great job while I was away. That Jim Brumfeld interview is really fun. I do have one, at least one thing to catch up on. Uh, before I left, I asked for airport birding stories because my flight to Tel Aviv was supposed to send me via Munich and I had a long layover and I was hoping to be able to get some birding in there. Well, it turns out that weather on the East Coast completely rearranged my schedule. I ended up not transiting through Germany, which was actually kind of disappointing, especially for my eBird lists. But I did get a couple tweets from listeners about airport birding that I wanted to share here. Dave Rogers tweets that he had a layover in Paris once and got rock pigeons and house sparrows. Was not impressed. Tina Rubin tweeted that the first bird she saw at an airport at the airport on a trip to Australia was house sparrow, which reminds me of a trip I made to India once where they were actually inside the baggage claim. So even if I tried not to, that was that was going to be the first bird. I hope your trip got better, Tina. I know mine did. And Joshua Phillips tweets that he has heard stories of birders arriving in Barbados, seeing the island's sole endemic Barbados bullfinch before even leaving the airport and then walking right back in to book a flight to St. Vincent 
or St. Lucia, which is hilarious and sounds exactly like something I would do too. All that is great. Thank you for that. Keep them coming if you have good airport birding experiences, because sadly, I, I do not. On the show today, spring is coming and it's bringing warblers with it. I have something to say about warbler obsession in the last part of the episode. But first, I bet you eBird, and if you're not eBirding the first weekend of May during eBird's global big day, you should be. I talk with Cornell Lab of Ornithology's Ian Davies and Kyle Horton about the global big day, BirdCast, and all the cool stuff eBird is doing right now. All that after this week's big catch-up Rare Bird Focus. This is your Rare Bird Focus for the last week of March and the first couple weeks of April. A lot has happened in this period, so hold on tight. We'll start with the one-day wonder that had the birding world buzzing for several days. A red warbler discovered at Mount Lemmon near Tucson, Arizona is a potential ABA area first record and a truly stunning one at that. The species is a Mexican endemic with two subspecies, gray-cheeked birds in the northern part of the range and white-cheeked birds in the southern. The drama surrounding this bird largely had to do with which population this individual came from, a question that, as of the time of this recording, is still open. Gray-cheeked birds are considered more likely, being as they come closest to the U.S.-Mexico border in the first place, and this bird was originally identified as gray-cheeked. Colors can actually be a little difficult to discern depending on the light. Later photos suggested that this bird might be white-cheeked. The current consensus seems to be Dino. And as the individual disappeared the next day, we may never know. I'm not sure about this species' prevalence in the cage bird trade, though it seems like that could be a possibility. In any case, it was a very exciting day for Arizona birders and most of the rest of us on the sidelines. Arizona continues to see exciting warblers even after the red warbler's disappearance. In the days that followed, both a fan-tailed warbler and a slate-throated redstart, both Code 4 birds were found in Cochise County, both of which have proven to be a little more accommodating for visiting birders. The fan-tailed in particular is a very nice bird. A couple other ABA area birds of note, a Code 5 marsh sandpiper was found in Yolo County, California. This is the second year in a row this species has been seen at this location in spring, so it seems likely that this is the same bird as last year, having been caught up in a migration cycle on the wrong continent. In Saskatchewan, a field fair spent a few days at a home in Creighton. This Eurasian thrush is somewhat regular in the ABA area, though almost exclusively on the coasts, as would be expected. This is the third record for the interior of the continent, and a first for that province. Other first to note for the period, in Wyoming, a Black Phoebe and Laramie was a first for the state, and in Colorado, a California quail was photographed in Moffat County, where it was a first as well. Both species are found quite regularly in neighboring states and were somewhat expected, but had never crossed over the border until this spring. Less expected was a Lazuli bunting in Fitzgerald, Georgia, though that did follow Alabama's second record the week before, and also a Violet Green Swallow was seen in Bar Harbor, Maine, for a first for that state. Also worthy of note here, though not strictly speaking a first, was Minnesota's second record of Cassin's Finch at a feeder in Hennepin County, though it was the second that first was about 30 years ago, so if the vast majority of the birding community wasn't birding when the first bird showed up, maybe an asterisk is appropriate. Sure feels like a first, I bet. That was an abbreviated roundup of the most notable records in the ABA area for the last three or so weeks. If you need everything, check out the ABA Rare Bird Alert post on the ABA blog, blog.aba.org, every Friday morning. And you can also join our Rare Bird Alert Facebook group at facebook.com slash ABA Rare, or follow the dedicated Rare Bird Twitter feed at 
ABA Bird Alert. Spring is right around the corner. You and I both know that you're going to be out in the field a lot in the coming weeks. You might as well be eBirding, and you definitely should be eBirding on May 5th, eBird's annual global big day. Last year, birders recorded more than 6,600 species from 160 different countries on one day. They're going to try and best that this year. I'm joined by eBird's project coordinator, Ian Davies, to talk about the Global Big Day initiative and how he's able to encourage such a huge buy-in from birders around the world. Welcome, Ian. Thanks, Nate. Uh, also also with me is Kyle Horton, postdoc researcher from the Cornell Lab, who is part of Cornell's BirdCast team, which over the last couple of years has been on the cutting edge of radar ornithology. They have recently launched live migration maps at birdcast.info, which will be an ex- amazing tool to help birders maximize those opportunities to see great birds this spring. Looks very exciting. Welcome, Kyle. Hi, Nate. Thanks for having me. So, so I'll go ahead and start with you, uh, Ian. So where did the, the idea of the Global Big Day come from, and what kind of information are you trying to get from it? Yeah, the idea of a, a big day kind of in birding is something that's been around for a long time. A bunch of birders packing into a car for a midnight to midnight birding binge <laughs> somewhere. Yeah. But our real idea was what happens if you take that concept of the, the single party big day and expand that to a whole world of birders? What if the, the team for a big day is really every birder in the world? And what kind of species total can you get in one day? Really, this idea began about three years ago, and it was really an experiment, uh, like eBird itself, kind of how can you tap into this, this worldwide network of people that are passionate about birds? And we've just been blown away and humbled by the global reach of Global Big Day. Uh, last year, as you said, more than 60% of the world's birds were seen in a single day, 164 countries and just tens of thousands of people out there engaging with birds, many for the first time. And uh, it's really an exciting thing to be a part of, both both uh, as a participant as well as someone here, uh, kind of an organizer. And uh, at the end of the day, all the data go into eBird and are also used, therefore, for research conservation and uh, for birders around the world. It's been really impressive. I'm sure this is sort of intentional, like some of the you know, outreach programs definitely sort of piggyback on existing sort of International Migratory Bird Day, which is usually around that time, projects that are going on. This is such a, a great way to to get people to, to actually use that information. So, so many people are out birding anyway. Why not encourage them to, to put that stuff into eBird where you can actually use it? Yeah, absolutely. And these kind of one-day events, too, are really powerful for engaging a lot of people uh, that are kind of interested in birds but don't have that normal day-to-day drive that, that classic birders do to get out there. And so it's just an amazing outreach event. Some of the most inspiring stories for us have really come out of country-level uh, events, kind of yeah. as a part of Global Big Day, particularly in, in Latin America, uh, where there's been some, some great rivalries over the years in a, in a positive way, we think at least, yeah. um, where in the first two years it was really uh, Peru and Brazil uh, that were kind of going head-to-head as two of the most biodiverse <laughs> countries in the world. They would actually organize some viewing parties to see results coming in in real time. And uh, a Brazilian <laughs> once told us that it was like watching the World Cup final. <laughs> and a, a Brazilian is, oh, big day is like that. We, we're, we're just closing it down. We, we can't get any better. That's right. That's right. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, one of the fa- more fascinating trends we've seen just in Eber generally in the last few years has been, the, you know, the incredible growth of those communities and, and birding communities around the world. Ebird, com- both birding communities and sort of, you know, eBird communities too, people wanting to put their information in, get their countries, you know, up the rankings and whatnot. Um, has that been organic or is uh, Cornell and eBird actively trying to encourage that? Yeah, that's a great question. We really kind of view eBird as a platform for people around the world who are interested in birds to collect sightings and then use those sightings. So the way that we view outreach and engagement is trying to find groups in a country that are doing a great job engaging local birders, uh, implementing on-the-ground conservation efforts and conducting research, and then work with them to provide a platform that they can use to uh, more efficiently do the work that they're already carrying out. Mm -hmm. And so we really just try to build capacity and work with local groups. And so the places that eBird is most effective and most used around the world are really where there's great local NGOs and governmental organizations doing bird work already. Yeah, that that makes sense. And and for, you know, a lot of the sort of avocational birding, I guess, hobby birding, for lack of a better term, has been so focused on historically, you know, in, in North America, the Western world. North America and Europe, uh, it's really been exciting to see places like Latin America get involved, and, and India has been crazy. I mean, the eBird growth in India has been unreal. Yeah, it's it's really cool to watch different groups kind of become activated in different regions just light up uh, around the world. And the really cool thing for us is all the different motivators that, that drive these groups. So the U.S. and Western Europe and places that are kind of much longer-term birding communities they're uh, caught up and driven by the listing mentality that I can say, at least for myself, was one of the, the main things that, especially as a new birder, it was the, the hunt for a new species, the, the interest of the chase, and, and the kind of fun numeric competition between friends. And that's really something that's very integral in Western birding. Latin America, community is often the biggest driver. People just want to get out in the field and have fun with other, other people. And so the numbers don't mean so much there. It's really community. And then in places like India, photography is the driver. The continual growth and easy access to digital cameras and cell phone cameras and everything. If you go birding in India, often you won't see a pair of binoculars um, in a group of 10 people. They just all have cameras. That's crazy. It's it's really neat to see birding itself grow in in really interesting ways there. and, and. As you said, they don't have the long kind of history that we're almost chasing in North America and Europe. They can kind of are free to take that platform, as you say, and kind of build on it themselves. It's and, and plug in through eBird to the to the global community. Yeah, absolutely. And with every year that goes by, um, there's just more more people interested in birds around the world. It's uh, yeah. it's impressive, and we're excited to see what it continues to bring. Yeah. In the past, the uh, the CLO, the Cornell Lab uh, Sap Suckers Big Day Team has done uh, something special for Global Big Day. Do they have anything planned this year? They sure do. Uh, There will be three teams of sapsuckers heading out this year on May 5th. Uh, One team will be going to Central California on the coast. Uh, One team will be going to Southern Honduras. And the third will be going to Northern Colombia. Oh, wow. And so the goal for those three places was really to highlight some of the interconnectedness for the the migratory birds in the Western Hemisphere 
particularly with a focus on shorebirds. Mm -hmm. um, and so each of those places has critical importance to shorebirds at various times of the year. By going there, we hope to be able to highlight the local communities that are working in bird conservation, as well as the birds themselves. That's neat. We'll move on a little bit to BirdCast. Kyle, I don't want to leave you sitting there. Um, I don't want to assume that listeners here are, are already sort of well-versed in the project. So, so Kyle, would you be able to explain a little bit about what BirdCast does? Sure. Yeah, happy to do it. Um, so BirdCast has existed for a handful of years now, um, and it was a project that really originated around 2012. But there was a precursor to that. Uh, run by Andrew Farnsworth and Sidney Gotro. Um, Sidney Gotro is one of the, the pioneers in right. radar ornithology yeah. and has done amazing work for decades now. Yeah, very much the, f the father of radar ornithology. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, so they have this vision of using radar data to predict and to forecast when migrants would be coming through a region, making hopefully making landfall. Mm -hmm. But that vision has taken much longer than we thought to get to where we're at today. Um, and there have been various hurdles. Um, radar data are sort of no easy task to deal with. Um, we've been sort of dealing with trying to remove weather, which there are, these radars are intended for studying weather <laughs> patterns. Right. But for us as ornithologists, we're interested in removing the weather and maintaining just the birds and the, the vast volume of birds that these radars do collect. And this this evolution of this BirdCast project is sort of really hit its stride just in the last couple of weeks. The timeline of BirdCast as it existed in 2012 was sort of trying to tap into some of the eBird data to see when migrants are moving through geographic regions, of, you know, what, what birders should expect in their region. Um, trying to make, you know, course level forecasts, just sort of Andrew is a guru in terms of looking at meteorological data and trying to understand where the migrants will be coming through, where they may be making landfall, with the potential fallouts in some regions. Um, but we've always wanted to sort of remove that human element of trying to come up with some automated process that is purely driven by data. And we're finally there. So, Bird watchers and really anyone can go to birdcast.info and what you'll see there right on the landing page is a migration forecast that will be populated multiple times a day now through the spring migration season. Yeah, um, but also you can sort of make your own validation of that. You can look at this live stream of data that are going to come in every night and those images will be updated every 10 to 20 minutes, depending on how the radar data come in. So that push is sort of a, a big landmark shift for us in terms of, you know, radar ornithologists, migration ecologists, um, and especially for BirdCast here at the Lab of Ornithology. You know, it definitely seems like so many of eBird's projects start as sort of or like a research question that ends up having really obvious birding applications for, for avocational birders and then sort of snowballs from there. Those live migration maps are such a cool new initiative. So what new information were you sort of able to take advantage of in the last couple of years that allows you to go from that, you know, very coarse scale predictions, as you say, to something that is that is so precise? Yeah, so there's, there's a series of updates that have happened um, and big shifts in our community. Um, so historically, the radar data have been difficult to access. They're freely accessible in the United States and for anyone to sort of tap into this archive and just start downloading data. 
But essentially, we were, you know, harvesting these data out of, you know, a dribble of data. We'd have to make a request for data. You'd wait days, if not, you know, a week long. Um, and then you'd acquire data. So you're always sort of waiting for the next sort of batch of data to come through. And NOAA paired with Amazon Web Services, and they put that entire archive, you know, this this hundreds of terabytes of data now exists in the cloud. Um, so that's a huge shift for us. Of We now can tap into data that we never have had easy access to. Um, so we sort of knew it, it was on the horizon, but um, as I said, we're sort of you know, utilizing and moving at our full stride now in, that's really in radar cool. ornithology. Yeah. So, so what should birders know when they use these maps? Yeah. So there, there's two phases, that, as you've alluded to, and you'll come to the landing page of BirdCast. You'll see migration forecasts and then this live migration map. So thinking about sort of, you know, bird watching, um, the way we, we've thought about this process of everyone wants to be bird watching all the time, um, but <laughs> sort of our day-to-day lives just don't allow for that. So if yeah. you can sort of plan ahead and see, you know, um, you know, three days out is when the big wave of mig- migrants are going to come through. That may be the day to prioritize or put some chores to the side or maybe if you can dip out of work. You know, if you can know the migrants are coming, you can look at these maps and they're quite reliable. Um, we're really confident in the predictions we're making up to three days. And so we, we have migration forecasts that will come out for that the night that you're looking at, the next night, and the night after that. So then you can sort of begin to plan. Um, there's a huge infrastructure that sits behind these forecasts. Um, we're only able to do this through machine learning processes, which are another advancement that I, I didn't sort of talk about. Um, but the computing power that we have and the analyses to do this, we result in fairly accurate forecasts night to night. And they use all the classic parameters that, you know, anyone sort of making their own forecast would use of, you know, looking at pressure systems and wind speed and direction and temperature and barometric pressure. Um, so it ingests all of that data and then we make these maps. So the, the gist of it is, that you could look at a map, and then if you're seeing warm colors, the yellows, oranges, and reds, that's a region that's going to see high migration activity, and hopefully those migrants uh, will make landfall. And that's sort of the the eBird pairing. We don't know the species yeah. from the radar perspective, uh-huh. um, so that's that's sort of up to the birders to sort of get out there, collect their data, submit it to eBird, and we can begin to integrate these from a research side of things to hopefully build a, a more complete picture of what's going on on a nightly basis. Right. And I imagine that sort of, and I'm going to try and tie these two things that I've been talking to you guys together. I imagine something like the Global Big Day, where you encourage so many people to get out and see stuff sort of at a peak of migration, gives you a ton of valuable information that you can apply to these these birdcast live migration maps that sort of allow you to, as you say, you'll be more precise with what species you can sort of ex- expect on any given yeah, night. Yeah, so that's, that's a great point. So migration monitoring in general is tricky business. Um, mm-hmm. the, these migrants are moving, you know, long distances. They're, you know, the spatial extent of migration is quite large. And the traditional large-scale data sets that we have to study birds, something like the breeding bird survey, um, the Christmas bird count, um, we're, we're really sort of missing some of these migrants and migrants in action. So the Global Big Day is this phenomenal data set to sort of, you know, tap into where these migrants are on a, on a period of time. Um, mm-hmm. But also hopefully, you know, folks can use BirdCast, although it's currently limited to the United States. Um, I was just going to point that out. <laughs> sort of, 
yeah, we can we can motivate um, you know that work to sort of expand the coverage, but within the United States, also hopefully motivate people to really get out as well, um, and then also use those data through the season to motivate just getting out you know as much as you can um, mm-hmm. and, and sort of maximize your birding experience. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned that it, it's currently only applies to the lower forty-eight. Do you have do you have plans to expand these live maps into Canada, southern Canada at least? I imagine like the birders in southern Ontario with those great hotspots there would love to have this sort of stuff too. I guess the I guess the rub is that the data that you're getting from NOAA is oh, it's federal to the United States. Is there a is there a Canadian counterpart that you can potentially work with to to expand the map? Yeah, that, that's a great point, and we're we're not limited to the United States because you know we want to expand to, you know, beyond Mm -hmm. uh, those boundaries. We want to be in Canada and Mexico and Europe and sort of, you know, across the world. Um, This is really the first phase of this. So as Mm -hmm. as I said, um, the forecasts and live migration maps are built on a U.S.-based radar system. Um, Canada also has a radar system. Um, It's just more difficult for us to access the data at present time. Um, but we certainly envision that, you know, we can partner with those agencies, um, use similar methodologies and really expand our coverage. Um, so I think we're, we could probably do it now, but we're not quite comfortable in the predictions we have because we don't have underlying data yet. But that's certainly the direction we hope to go of, you know, use everything that exists uh, sort of in our in our toolbox and then you know, hopefully use these data to, you know, inform bird watchers, but also do great conservation science. Yeah. Thanks Ian and Kyle. Uh, be sure to make plans to get out and eBird on May 5th, help push that, that species total upward. I'll, I'll be at the biggest week in Ohio that weekend. So I'll be eBirding, but so will thousands of others, I'm sure. Um, and check out BirdCast. That stuff is at birdcast.info for all your spring birding migration news. Thank you guys. Thank you. Happy birding. Yeah. Where I live in the western part of North Carolina's Piedmont, the warblers are starting to come back. Louisiana water thrushes and yellow-throated warblers first, followed by palm and prairie and black and white, and then the rest of them in a whole hormone-driven headlong rush northward. I hope I get a bunch of them before they head out. That's That, to me, is the sign of a good spring. And the thing is, if I were to completely dip on tanagers, fail at flycatchers, strike out at thrushes, for the rest of the year, I would still think back on the spring as a good one if I got a good number of warblers. I think I'm not alone in saying that I and, and so many other birders sort of experience a bit of an obsession with the perilids every year, and the reasons are both obvious and, and maybe not so obvious. No warbler can compete with the haunting songs of any Catharist thrush, and while some may come close, none that I know in the ABA area at least glow from within like a male scarlet tanager or a Baltimore oriole. The migrations of shorebirds for the most part are are more impressive in pure distance. The impid flycatchers challenge us more thoroughly. The hawks are more dramatic in their numbers, but still, you know, it's the warblers that capture us. The warblers that we travel to bird festivals specifically to see, uh, that I tally so diligently for myself every spring, that truly make or break spring migration for so many birders, particularly in the eastern part of the continent, but the west has some lookers too. They're beautiful, sure, the migration is remarkable, and despite the balance being Mostly variations on yellow and brown. Many can knock your socks off. But mostly there are are just so many of them. I'm convinced that this obsession with this family above all this time of year comes from their amazing diversity. And birders, being nothing if not fervent collectors of experiences, for good or ill, 
are left helpless before the wave of birds. We gawk at orioles and tanagers, we scratch our heads at flycatchers and thrushes, but we devour warblers, even the dull brown ones, because we gotta get them all every year. The next few weeks we'll see crowds of birders and flocks of birds descend on Maggie Marsh in Northwest Ohio for the biggest week in American birding. I'll be there too for at least the first weekend. As with any migrant hotspot, the diversity on the south shore of Lake Erie is impressive. Orioles, thrushes, tanagers, flycatchers, night jars, and more seemingly tangle with each other to get in front of birders' binoculars and cameras. Most years, the daily onslaught of birds lives up to even the most unreasonable expectations. It's a rare thing in a world where neotropic migrant populations continue to decline. All these birds are fantastic, but it's the warblers that are the showstoppers. It's the warblers that bring people back again and again to expand their gear, state, or lifeless. It's the warblers that make High Island and Point Paley and all those myriad little migrant traps out west, such well-birded places. All that other stuff is icing. Warblers are springs, meat, and potatoes. A few years ago, I set a personal high with 31 species in one spring, all in the state of North Carolina, I'll add. Things were really good around my home, and I made a trip to the southern Appalachians to pick up a few more local species like Cerulean, Golden-Winged, and Swainson's. This year, I'll almost certainly see fewer, unless the biggest week is really good to me. Not that a handful fewer will certainly make this year a bad spring, but such a smorgasbord would absolutely guarantee that this would be a great spring, a real spring to sing about. So I hope you have a great spring. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. We are a membership organization and we appreciate your support. You can support a better birding community and this podcast by joining the ABA today. Learn about becoming a member at aba.org slash join. Special thanks to Tim Carney of Baltimore, Maryland, Erica Goodman and Michael Melton of Olympia, Washington, Lisa Shibley of Plymouth, Massachusetts, Jenny Brandon of Ripley, Tennessee, Joshua Sims of Fayetteville, North Carolina. I know that guy. Heidi Hayes of Lakewood, Colorado, and Anitra K. and Krishna Sriram of San Diego, California. You all joined the ABA in the last couple weeks and noted this podcast as a reason. Thank you so much and welcome to the American Birding Association. If you're feeling motivated, you can head over to Apple Podcasts or whatever your preferred podcast dispensary is and leave us a rating or review. We appreciate your feedback and it helps people find us down the road. Thanks so much. Executive producer of the podcast and president of the ABA is Jeffrey Gordon. In his spare time, he has developed a smart playback app that is so effective that he likens it to reeling in a fish. He calls it, this can't be right, Birdcast. Technical production is by John Lowry. He's writing and producing a musical about birding. It's very exciting, has original music and lyrics. There's no name yet, but he's currently looking for people to take part in his Birdcast. Okay, I, I, I think I see what's going on here. Additional support comes from David Hartley and Greg Neese. They developed this program that filters reports of rare birds based on a proprietary system that ranks the individual birder's reputation. It creates sort of a, a birding social hierarchy. They, they rightly shelved it when they realized how that probably wouldn't go over well. It was called Birdcast. Oh, I, I see with an E there. You can find us online at aba.org, on Facebook at facebook.com birders, and on Twitter at ABA. We're developing a new birding news podcast, something more along the lines of a nightly news program. We're calling it, oh, come on, Birdcast? Questions and comments can come to me at podcast.aba.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Till next time.